So Paul starts this off, and it's kind of something we expect him uh, to say most of the time. And um, we hear Paul talk about this a lot. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Live your life and how it, it matters how you live your life. And so um, I want you to know that what he says here is actually something different. And the, like the original language here, the wording he uses is different than what he normally uses. Because he uses a word that refers to citizenship. So that, that first verse of verse. This passage, chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's actually using a word that reflects citizenship. It's a, a political type of word. And it's interesting because if you remember when we started the series, Paul, uh, Kai gave us some of the background of Philippians and the, the church there, the city of Philippi. This was a Roman city, Roman province, Roman colony. So these people had a lot of pride in their citizenship. Uh, if you were a Roman citizen in this day and time, it was a pretty big deal. Like some people actually paid lots and lots of money so they could achieve Roman citizenship status. And so if you had received that, it wasn't just something that they just gave out to anybody freely. It's something you kind of had to earn. It's something that you, you had to walk yourself into. Sometimes you had to even buy it. And it was a big deal. And so Paul is writing to this group of people who are most likely citizens, and they, they have a lot of pride in that. They have a lot of reason to kind of stick their chest out a little bit and say, yes, I'm a Roman citizen. We're in the, the important city. We're from the important city of Philippi. And so he uses a word there. Instead of just saying walk or live or whatever, he says, act like citizens. Uh, and, and specifically, he's saying, live like citizens worthy of the gospel. It's, it's this idea that, hey, you... you you make a big deal about your citizenship in Rome, I want to point you to a higher citizenship. I want to point you to the fact that you're a citizen of a higher kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, and I want you to live your life with that in mind, that our life is a response, a reflection of the gospel, worthy of the gospel. And so that's the context. I think you can kind of see that a little bit, and you can kind of understand that. Maybe that helps you understand what he's calling them to, but I wanted to make sure we get it. And so Here's the deal. Our church has been growing. Everybody kind of sees that. If you've been around for a while, you've seen our church growing. And, and that growth has been great. And a lot of people uh, have found our church after moving here from outside of the Republic of Texas. And that's fine. We, we're happy that you're here. If you're from California, Washington, wherever, like we, you're welcome here. Even if you're from Oklahoma, you're welcome here, okay? But what, what you need to understand is that those of us that are from Texas, they're born and raised, we're native Texans, we're, we're sons and daughters of the republic, that when we see you move here, we automatically assume something about you, and that is that you finally figured it out. <laughs> like you figure out, Texas is better, and I got to get there. And so that's what we're assuming. We don't, you, you can tell us your story, but we're just nodding our head going, yeah, you figured out, Texas is better. And that's just part of it. If you're, if you're not from here, welcome to the pride of Texas. Like, that's just the way we see the world, the way we see it. Like, it's instilled in us when we're born. Our parents, are, that's one of their jobs is make sure that we understand that we're Texans, and that's a big deal. And if you didn't think that that was a big deal, then let me just tell you how crazy I am. So my wife and I, when we were expecting our first child, we were living in Indiana. We were doing foreign missions at that time. And so... <laughs> We found out we're expecting. We found out it was going to be a boy. And I kind of, I, I kind of began to panic a little bit because I was like, he's, he's not going to be born in Texas, so he's not going to be a Texan. 
And that was a big deal to me. It was a pretty big deal to Tammy because she was born and raised very close to Texas in El Paso. And so it was a big deal to her, but it was a bigger deal to me. And so I started figuring out, like, what, what can we do about this? Should I just send Tammy, you know, to, back to Texas when it's close to time? And she didn't like that idea at all. And I got on the Internet because that's where all the solutions are. And I found a way that I could email, send an email to the governor of Texas. And so I did. And I explained our predicament. Like, you know, my wife and I were missionaries here in Indiana. And we're about to have a son. And we wanted to be a Texan. So is there any way, Governor George W. Bush, that you could declare our hospital, our hospital delivery room to be a Texas embassy? Yeah, I emailed that to him. I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I got a Texas flag. I'm going I'm to I'm hang it up before he's born. I really did that, y'all. My wife was in labor, and I was like, you think it'll look good over here? <laughs> and I hung a Texas flag up in there. And I said, anything you could do to help, declare that room to be a Texas embassy so that he can be born a Texan, that would be great. And I sent the email. I printed the email because I wanted proof to put in his baby book, you know, like that's a part of his story. And, and then I showed some of my friends in Indiana that email, and they looked at me like I was a nut. Like, they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, well, you're a weird person. They laughed at me, all that kind of stuff. Two weeks later, in our mailbox was a letter from the governor of the state of Texas. I assume he wrote it. Don't tell me if it was a staff. Like, let's just believe that he wrote it. And I opened this letter. I'm like, he wrote us back. And he, he basically said, uh, I, I understand your predicament. I can't declare a hospital room to be a Texas embassy, but I can declare your son to be an honorary Texan. If you'll just send me his name and his birth date, then I will be glad to do that. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. And I'm looking at my friends like, who's laughing now? And <laughs> it's like, that was one of the first things I did after he was born. We named him Austin, of course. And when Austin was born, I sent correspondence to the uh, governor, and uh, guys, this is where the story gets great, because a couple of weeks after that, we received from the governor's office a certificate <laughs> <laughs> declaring that Austin James Shoemaker is an honorary Texan with all the rights and privileges that you would expect with such a title. <laughs> there you go. It, it just came like this, but Tammy framed it. We'll keep it forever. I keep telling him he needs to hang it in his room, but he just left it at our house, so we just keep it. <laughs> so if you're, if you're from Texas, you get that. If you're not from Texas, you're wondering why you're a part of this church right now. You're like, I don't think that guy can help us. <laughs> but that's just how we, how we view the world. There's a, there's a pride in who we are and where we're from, whether it's Whatever state you're from, wherever country you're from, wherever you're from, whatever family you're part of, there should be a natural pride there. And when Paul says, I want you to live a life that's worthy to the Philippians who were citizens and proud of their citizenship, he said, but it's even more important than that. It's even bigger than that. I want you to think about the fact that you represent your citizens of the heavenly kingdom, the king of all kings, he's your king, he's your leader, and you're citizens of that kingdom because of what Jesus did, and then your life is a response to that. Your life is to show, man, I'm a part of that kingdom. 
What, what Paul is basically saying is that if you really understand your citizens of that kind of a kingdom, your life ought to reflect it. It ought to be easy to see how you live, how you approach the world, how you view the world, how you interact with people. Everything you do ought to reflect that you are a citizen of the highest kingdom of all time. And so he says, live like citizens worthy of the gospel. And it's a big deal for him. The word he uses there at the very beginning, he says only. The, the English translation of only. It's hard for us to really translate the force of that word. It means above everything else. Above everything else, above all else, the, most, the highest priority in your life is to live as citizens of the kingdom. That's ultimate. That's, that's the top. That's above everything else, every other relationship, everything else. You live your life as a citizen of the kingdom, worthy of the gospel. And then he says, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll hear that you're living this way. You, you know Paul's predicament. He's in prison. He's, he's hoping that he can get out. He's hoping... He, he, He's okay if he doesn't, but he's hoping that. And he says, hey, whether I come and see you, if I get out, Caesar lets me out, I get to come see you, that'd be great. Uh, or if I remain absent or even if I die, here's what I, I, I'm hoping that I'll hear that you're living a life worthy of the gospel. It's that big of a deal to him. Do this above everything else. This whole letter uh, to the Philippian church is filled with Paul's joy. He's rejoicing about everything. You can't take his joy away. He's in prison. He's like, I'm just going to share the gospel with the guards. He's just, I'm rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. But there's almost like there's a hint here. He doesn't say it, but there's a hint that the one thing that could take away his joy is if he heard that the, the church in Philippi wasn't doing this. They weren't living a life that's honoring the gospel and worthy of the gospel, that that might actually take away some of his joy. So he's like, no matter what, whether I stay here, whether I come see you, I want to hear that you're living a life as citizens of the kingdom worthy of the gospel. And so that's where he starts, and then he begins to build on it, and as he does, he changes the metaphor. And he starts talking with battle terminology, battle words, um, standing firm in one spirit. Well, one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And there's this picture of a battle going on, this picture of a war going on. And so now he's talking about the fact that we're soldiers. We're citizens of the greatest kingdom, but we're also soldiers. And so he says, live like citizens worthy of the gospel and stand like soldiers united and unafraid. And it's just the simple reality that we are in a battle. It's sometimes too easy for us to forget that in our context and our culture. We, we have so much ease and comfort that we, we forget that there's a spiritual battle going on around us all the time. We're in the middle of it. It's fighting for our kids, for our families, for our, our lives, everything. There's always a spiritual battle. We're right in the middle of that spiritual battle. And Paul's saying, yes, you're citizens of a higher kingdom, but you're also soldiers ready to fight. So we're going to stand like soldiers, united and afraid. It's... It's kind of a picture of like what you would call in our context like the reserves or even the National Guard where they're, they're, they have jobs and they're, they're interacting just a normal life, but they're always ready to be called. They're always ready to go respond to a need. There's always the, the disaster comes and they're ready to go and serve. They're, they're, they might be deployed at any moment, but they're normal citizens working, doing their daily lives, but they're always standing by alert. And so we're citizens and we're soldiers all at once. Paul's kind of giving us this picture of how we should live. Live like citizens, worthy of the gospel. Stand like soldiers, united and unafraid. And so the wording that he gives there is really kind of pointing us to how we stand. 
How we stand united and how we stand unafraid. So we stand firm in one spirit and one mind. That's the togetherness of this thing. He's saying stand firm. Don't lose ground. Take the ground and stand firm on that ground. Guys, we don't do that alone. You don't do that. You don't, you don't hold the ground in enemy territory by yourself. You do that when you're with a battalion. You do that when you're with your soldiers and, and you're standing beside each other. And so he's saying stand firm with one spirit and one mind. That unity that we've been given because of who Jesus is and what he's done, because the Holy Spirit unites us. And so we stand firm, hold this ground together as soldiers in the battle. And so we're united. And then he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we strive side by side for the gospel. We're striving. We stand firm on the ground that we have been given. And yet we're always moving forward too. We're striving together. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to embrace the mission that God has called for me. And there's always a mission. There's always a higher calling. There's always something to be involved in. And, and sometimes we call it building his kingdom or advancing his kingdom. That God has given us a mission. And so we're standing firm and then we're striving together, side by side, on a mission together, moving this thing forward. And he is so clearly using the soldier language here. But in that one instance when he says striving, it's a word from athletics. It's a word from sports. It's really the word we get athletics from. And so all of a sudden he says, and remember, you're not just soldiers, you're on a team. Like we're doing this together. So you look to your left and you look to your right and you realize, so I got teammates that we're doing this together and it's a sports term. And, and that was interesting to me this week because I was thinking about how um, Paul would have had the Olympics as kind of starting in that day and time. And he, would have, he refers to the Olympics a lot, the competitions, the games. And so much of the Olympic events have some kind of tie to fighting, to military, to battles, right? Like javelin throw? I mean, that doesn't sound like a good activity, really. Like, hey, hey, kids, take this javelin, see how far you can throw it. That, that doesn't sound like just a competition. That sounds like something that came out of a battle background. That sounds like a couple soldiers sitting out there, and they're like, you know what? Back in high school, I could throw a javelin a quarter mile. Oh, yeah? Oh, I could throw a javelin over that mountain over there. And all of a sudden, they're like throwing a javelin so you can throw it. And all of a sudden, it's in the Olympics. I mean, all these kinds of things. The Olympics have that. They have fencing. They have discus throw. They have wrestling. I mean, they have all these different kinds of battle. Um, the source of those games, you can look at it and go, yeah, that was probably something they did in fighting, something they did. Even running, right? Sometimes the enemy's just bigger. Run away. Like, who can run the fastest? <laughs> and so Paul says, hey, you're soldiers. And you're striving like a team together. What do they say in sports all the time? The name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. Because you're a part of the team. We're holding the ground. We're standing firm. And we're striving towards the goal. We're, we're moving forward side by side. And says so we, we also show that we're not afraid. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So don't be afraid, which is easier said than done until you remember, oh, guess what? We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and our spot in that kingdom is secured and reserved because of what Jesus did, and so there's nothing anybody can do to me that would make me afraid. What does God say? Don't, don't fear the person who can only kill the body. 
because we have an eternal destiny because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. We don't have to be afraid. So our citizenship helps alleviate the fear. And then we look to the left and we look to the right and we realize we're standing together, striving side by side. We're in this together and we, it produces a courage in us so that we're not afraid. We move forward. In the face of the, our opponents, we can show that we're not afraid. <laughs> and, you know, the reality is we don't like to talk about this a lot, but there, that's, that, there are opponents. There are enemies of the faith. And if you're following Jesus and you're pursuing him and you're living a life worthy as a citizen of the kingdom, there should be some op- opponents coming against you. There should be some persecution. I mean, Jesus kind of says that over and over. That's going to be a part of it. They're going to treat me this way, and then they're going to treat you the same way. And so persecution ought to be something we expect from this. There is an opponent. And I don't know um, if you are new here or you haven't started following uh, Crosspoint on all our social media channels, but Nicole Bowder does an amazing job of that. And recently she started using this thing called Reels on Instagram, which is basically Instagram's version of TikTok. Nicole probably wanted to do TikTok, but we said no dancing. So she's doing Reels. And she started taking... I think Watkins helps with that. They take some of the clips from our sermons, like a minute clip, and they'll put it out there on a reel, and it's public for anybody to see. And it's just a way that we can show what we're doing. We can help you share these things that you're learning, this truth. It's a reminder to us. But on reels, it's very public. Anybody can just scroll through reels and see it. And um, Scott Sutton, who preached last week's new, new full-time staff member, been around for a while, him and his family. Scott preached uh, several weeks ago, and he was preaching about the idea of suffering which is, a, man, it's such a theme in Philippians anyway. And he's talking about how God uses our suffering. He's talking about how God redeems our suffering. He's talking about the, the value of suffering. And we put a reel together and put that out there. And so anybody's watching, it's like 4,000 views, which is, which is great. But anybody can also comment on it. And so somebody commented on that particular clip of Sutton's. And uh, he's obviously not a believer, I don't know how he saw our reel and why he watched the whole thing, but he did. And he said this about it. As a non-believer, preachers like this guy appear to be mentally unstable loons. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know, we're all mentally unstable loons. All your preachers are. It's okay. We just would rather you say it than them, all right? (laughs) He says, hey, guys, find the strength to escape the cult of Christianity. And I asked Watkins, are you going to take that comment off there? And he's like, no. He's like, I'm leaving it up there, mainly because it's funny. But it's also a reminder that we, we're in a battle. People don't believe this. That's okay. It's okay to have opponents. He says, when you are face-to-face with your opponents, don't be afraid. You have, you have too much going for you to be afraid. And then he says something really, really interesting here. This is a clear sign. This is the last part of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that's from God. So when you stand firm and you strive side by side and opponents come against you and you're not afraid, you don't shrink back, you don't hide, but you keep moving forward, you face them right, you look them in the eyeball, like all that stuff, when that's happening, he says it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. And it's a clear sign to everybody else of your salvation. (laughs) When I read that the first time, I was like, yeah, it is. 
I want to rub it in their face. Like, see this? If your destruction's coming, let me tell you where it is. H-E double hockey sticks. Like, that's what it's doing. Like, I want to make fun of people, right? That's not the spirit of the scriptures. That's not what the Bible teaches. When you stop and think about what, what Paul would really say by that, it, it starts to make a little bit more sense. You say, we should be living our lives with so much hope that the unbelieving world who doesn't understand that sees that and that they at least recognize the difference. They at least recognize that the path that they're on is not leading them where they really wanted to go and maybe the path that we're on is leading us in a different direction. That they should recognize their destruction is coming by the hope that we have in our lives. The way we live with hope. I mean, the Bible says that. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope. Sometimes people don't ask us for the hope because we're hoping in the same things. But we should live a life as citizens worthy of the gospel, standing firm like soldiers, united and unafraid. And it should show the world that there's a better way. That their path is leading to destruction and there's another path they ought to consider. They won't always do that. They, won't, they might continue to throw barbs, but that should be the goal to, to, to attract them to the greatness of God, to attract them to the worship of the one true and living God, to attract them to give their life to something that will really fulfill them. And just be, our lives should be a clear sign that that path is a dead end and this path leads to salvation. That's a challenge. Citizen soldiers. You're citizens of a higher kingdom, live like it. Let your life show it. Every decision, every part of your life, it ought to reflect that you're living a life worthy of the gospel. And be ready for the battle. Be on the alert. Stand firm. Strive. And don't be afraid. So how do we do that? I mean, it's, it's a clear challenge right in our face from Paul. But how do we do it? And I think Paul gives part of the answer here in verse 29. Because he says, God's going to give us a couple gifts here. God's gifts of grace can help us live as citizen soldiers. He's got a couple gifts, very specific. There's lots more, but in this particular passage, there's two gifts that God's giving us so that we can live this life that he's calling us to as citizens of the kingdom and as soldiers in the battle. And the first one is faith to believe in him. Verse 29, for it's been granted to you for that for the sake of Christ you should believe in him. He's giving us the ability to believe in him. He's given us the faith to believe in him. Our faith in God is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. The faith that we have is God's gift to us. We need that to survive this life. He gives us this faith and then he puts us through things, he allows things to come in our lives that strengthen our faith. And so God is always strengthening our faith and building our faith so that we look back and we see how God has got us through difficult times. He's sustained us, he's rescued us, he's provided for us, and it builds our faith for the next time we encounter a struggle. So he's giving us faith and he's strengthening our faith. And this grace that he's given us, this gift that he's given us is to believe in him, to have faith that he's in control, that we won't fail, that our eternity is secured, that the battle's already won, the victory's already achieved because of Jesus, and so we can stand firm and move forward. We don't have to be afraid. So he's given us this gift of faith to believe in him. And the other gift that he's given us, the strength to suffer for his sake. <laughs> he's given us the gift of suffering. 
But you open that up on Christmas and you're like, where's the receipt, right? This is like tube socks. <laughs> this is not a cool gift, it doesn't seem like. What? Oh, suffering? Is, oh, yeah, faith, I'm with you. But suffering, I don't, nope, didn't ask for that. Wasn't on my list. We've already talked about this some because there's so much rejoicing in Paul's writing this letter, but there's so much suffering that's going on that he's rejoicing anyway. But the more that you grow in your relationship with Christ, the more you trust him, the more your faith is built, the more you see suffering differently. The more you see it as an instrument that God uses to produce stuff in us that wouldn't be produced another way. He's strengthening us. He's helping us persevere. He's working us through. And he's helping us to help others because of how he got us through that suffering. And so, in one sense, the suffering is itself is a gift. And that's, that's just, as we continue to grow, we begin to see it that way. The commentator, Dennis E. Johnson, in his Philippines commentary said it this way. I thought it was so helpful. He says, can we believe that our suffering is a gift of God's grace? The whips lash, the shackles on ankles, shipwreck, exposure, hunger, the threat of the sword. Can these really be received as tokens of God's grace? Yes, exactly. And this next line is so important. As you realize more deeply how God used Jesus' suffering to bring you everlasting joy, you begin to have surprising reactions to your own suffering. You see suffering as providing opportunities to bring Jesus even more glory by the comfort that his Holy Spirit brings. The more you understand the gospel... The more you understand how your joy was brought to you because of Jesus' suffering, the more it will produce, and I love it, surprising reactions to suffering. Count it all joy, reactions to suffering. Because of what? Because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus endured. His suffering is the source of our hope. His suffering is the source of our joy. So the more I understand the gospel, it produces a different reaction to the suffering. So these disciples were with Jesus and they didn't get it. And we know that they didn't get it all throughout the Gospels. And then the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 1 and they began to get it. And they began to proclaim the message of Jesus and the religious leaders came against them and threatened them and put them in prison. Acts chapter 5, they just got put in prison and then they were beaten before they were released. Acts chapter 5 verse 41, right after they were beaten... Then they were let go. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They just got beaten because they were presenting Jesus to people, telling people about Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, and they were put in prison and beaten for it. And they walk out so filled with joy that they were worthy to suffer alongside Jesus. And then what do they do? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that Christ is Jesus. They were beaten for teaching about Jesus. They rejoiced that they were worthy of suffering, and they kept on teaching about Jesus. They stood firm, strived together. They were not afraid. And it changes your view of suffering. I'm not there yet. I'm on the journey to have surprising reactions to the suffering and the trials of my life. I want to continue to press on. I want to strive together with you so that we continue to move forward. And when suffering happens, when trials happen, when setbacks come, that we keep moving forward, we keep trusting. And so he gives us this gift of faith. And he's strengthening our faith. And he's given us the strength to suffer for his sake. 
And so how, how can we do this? What he's calling us to is so interesting. It's so unique. It's in the face of opposition, he's calling us to have humility and courage. Those two things don't normally reside together. He wants us to be humble and yet very, very brave. Usually people that are very courageous are not very humble. Usually people that are very, uh, very humble are not very courageous. They're kind of timid. He's saying, no, I want you to be humble and courageous. In the face of opposition, how do you do that? So let me give you, let me give you three ways that I, I hope that you can remember them, hope you can go back to them, hope that you can recite them, hope you encourage each other with these three things that maybe will put us on a path to facing opposition with humility and courage as citizen soldiers. First, look around. I'm like, look around. God's put you on a team. These are the people he's put you with. We're going to stand firm together. We're going to strive forward side by side. You need the people in this room. I need you. You need me. We need each other. And so look around and be encouraged. Look around as we sing the songs and we proclaim the truth and we sit and we take notes and we try to learn the stuff and we try to apply it and we try to depend upon Jesus to help us with all this. Look around and be encouraged that we are not alone. Look around. And I want you to look ahead. Everything that Paul tells these guys to do, he's doing. He, he planted this church. He knows these people. He loves these people. And now he's suffering in prison in Rome, writing to them, trying to encourage them, trying to bring them joy. And he's challenging them with everything that he's doing. What did he just say a, a few verses before this? What has happened to me has only gone, has only been used by God to advance the gospel. So I'm rejoicing. What happened to me is only making the gospel go. What's happened to me is encourage the other believers so that they're being more bold now. So what's happened to me, I'm going to rejoice in it. I'm in prison. I've endured all these hardships, but it's only been for the gospel. And so he's lived that out. Last week, Scott taught us that he was saying, hey, if I die here in prison, if Caesar puts me to death, if I'm executed, I win. And if he lets me go, then I can go plant more churches, I win. His life doesn't matter to him. Only the gospel, the, me the message, the ministry, the calling of God on his life, that's ultimate. And he doesn't care what path it is. He just wants God to be glorified. And so he's saying this to these people and challenging these people, and he's the example for them because he's doing it. So the Philippian church could look to Paul. They could look ahead. He's just ahead of them in this whole journey. He actually says that in verse 30. You're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Same stuff. Same opponents. So you can stand firm because I'm standing firm. So look ahead. Find somebody in your life that's a little bit ahead of you and talk to them. Ask them questions. Buy them coffee and, and, and pick their brain. Get some people that are a little bit ahead of you that you can look to that will encourage you and inspire you on this journey. I talk to people all the time that see my family and they see my kids and they know that I'm ahead of them and they see how my kids are turning out and still in the process and they think, man, you got it all together. I'm like, oh, let's go get some coffee. I'll tell you the real story. Because I can give you a lot of hope. <laughs> I can give you a lot of encouragement. Find some people like that. They're a little bit ahead of you. They can speak the truth into you and encourage you and inspire you. So look around and look ahead, but ultimately look up. Because Examples are great, and they're important and necessary, but what we really need is Jesus. We need to look up and see that Jesus decided to endure 
the shame of the cross. He didn't despise it and turn away from it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross for our benefit and our salvation. So when we look up to him and we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we find the help that we need. He puts us in the place that we can stand firm with each other. We can strive forward side by side and we don't have to be afraid. It's not because of anything in us, it's because of everything in him. And he's given us that power through his Holy Spirit, through the truth of the gospel, to lead us on in the battle so that we can be citizens and live like it, worthy of the gospel, the lives that we live. And we can be soldiers standing on that ground, striving forward on the mission that he's called us to. Let's be those people. Let's be those people together, and let's look up and look to Jesus for all of it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth that's in your word. I need this. I need this reminder. We all need these reminders of what you've done for us, what, how you make life possible as a citizen in, of your kingdom because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So God, help us. Help us to live like that in a way that brings honor to your name. Help us to stand firm together, strive side by side and not be afraid no matter what opposition continues to mount against us. And God, help us to do all that for your glory and our joy as we follow you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.